Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like John, Robin, Janet, Ben, Walker, and Garrett, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you are able to support the podcast with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. But if that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store if you feel so inclined. So check it out. Today's guest is Gabe Canfield. Gabe is Inupiaq and was born in Fairbanks, Alaska, but grew up in Ketchikan. Her family hails from Wales, Nome, and Ketchikan, and she now lives in Anchorage in the Denina homeland. She works in the entwined fields of indigenous advocacy and fisheries resource management. Gabe graduated from Dartmouth College in 2021 with a bachelor's degree in environmental studies and Native American studies, and now works at the Yukon River Drainage Fisheries Association as the project coordinator. Okay, sweet. Well, we can get started. Um, I wanted to say first, just thank you, Gabe, for coming on the podcast. I'm really pumped to have you here and, you know, hear what you've been up to and what you're working on now. Um, But I like to ask, like every guest I bring on, kind of what inspired them to get into fisheries and how they got their start. Um, So I guess what pushed you to get into the field of fisheries resource management? Ooh, I feel like if I have to answer this question, I have to go really, really far back. <laughs> That's um, fine. <laughs> because I grew up in Alaska, right? I am from Ketchikan. So that means I've pretty much been fishing since I could walk. Like that's kind of just yeah. <laughs> the, the play of the game by growing up in Southeast Alaska. Um, so I've just grown up around fishing. I was on fishing boats since I was a baby. I was shore fishing along my parents while they were going for whatever they can get mostly salmon but we caught a lot of different things so um but that's just kind of like a part of life there so it's just been something that I've been used to um I guess if I was to think about it from a fisheries management perspective how I've kind of gotten into that um it'd be similar just because I've been watching my family members and my friends and like people that I've grown up with losing the ability to fish and Mm -hmm. losing the opportunity to fish for whatever they want for subsistence reasons for um, sport fishing reasons just because not only because regulations are coming in or but because we know that those regulations aren't doing as much as they should because the fish are still being reduced and Mm -hmm. I think that's something that when you are used to fishing and growing up with it, it's something that you think about all the time. And yeah. that like really inspired me to go into it. So that's kind of kind of the reason why I did. I didn't really focus on that when I was an undergrad, but I just got drawn back into it, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was sort of like a natural thing to step into, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad to be in this field too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess, so you're about to start off as a project manager with the Yukon River Drainage Fisheries Association. Um, and since you're also an avid fisherman yourself, I was wondering if you could 
kind of walk the listeners who may not be familiar through like what the Yukon River ecosystem is like um, and what the salmon fishery in Western Alaska is like since, you know, for us Florida folks and others <laughs> who have no idea what it's like, um, it'd be cool to hear from you about it. Yeah, yeah, I could totally share. Um, I have been on the Yukon River a couple of times. Um, I haven't fished on it. Uh, but the Yukon is massive. It's almost 2,000 miles long. It goes, it kind of curves in like a really big arc that goes yeah. to the mountains in Yukon territories and British Columbia and Canada. And it goes all the way through Alaska. And then the headwaters are near a number of native villages in Western Alaska. I believe it's Scammon Bay, Hooper Bay, Alukanuk, like a couple other native mm-hmm. villages that are right off the mouth of the river. And there used to be a really massive Chinook and chum salmon fishery there. Um, all five species of salmon do swim up the river, but chum and Chinook are the only ones that make it up to the headwaters. So mm. p- people in Canada and all the way up and down the Yukon have been fishing. It used to be commercially, but now it's only subsistence fishing allowed on the river because the chum and the Chinook salmon have collapsed. That fishery has collapsed on the river. Mm. Um, that kind of relates to all of the Western Alaska fishery. There is a really massive fishery out in the Bering Sea. It's called Area M. And it's mm-hmm. kind of like the resource management area of where the fish are swimming around as they're coming back to spawn, leaving the Bering Sea, leaving the Gulf of Alaska. And these salmon kind of mix and um, mingle together in this space with fisheries that are returning to Bristol Bay, which is actually the biggest mm. sockeye salmon return in the world. They have wow. many millions of fish going back there every single year. It's massive returns. So we have a really big coastal Alaska salmon fishery fleet of mm. all different types of fishermen. We have gill netters, we have seiners, we have purseiners, we have trollers, like all sorts of types of fisheries. And they also mix with the crab fishery, the halibut fishery, and a number, and I believe the pollock fishery that does trawling, mm-hmm. um, among other types of fisheries. It's kind of all in that area. It's like a big, yeah. map, like, you know, Bering Sea fishery. Like, it's <laughs> yeah. huge. like we have so many bit people that come up here from the lower 48 Alaska fishermen all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and those salmon are destined for rivers all over the coast. So these um, salmon are out swimming in the ocean and competing for food and things like that. And Unfortunately, it is interesting that this combination of the Yukon salmon collapse, which happened actually in 2020. So this is the third year now that Yukon chum and Chinook have collapsed. There, There is right now, I believe the numbers are less than 500,000 or less than 600,000 salmon have been counted at the sonars in wow. the region. There's this, I believe there's a sonar in Pilot Station and an Eagle mm-hmm. and a couple other weirs that do salmon measurement these practices that are uh, co-managed by the yeah. or not not co-managed is another word for it but by the state and the tribes and the people who are mm. such a region um, we kind of at Yukon Regenerative Fisheries Association kind of partner with the state and with these people and the fishermen in the villages to do these counts to see if we can open up a subsistence fishery that Hmm. that's kind of what my job is to help partner with these people so we could keep track of the salmon because it's such an important resource these salmon to the people who are living on the river it's a huge subsistence thing especially since 
food is such a barrier for people in these villages. It's really expensive to get food out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Sometimes meals can be upwards of a hundred dollars for just one meal. Oh, wow. Just, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like right now, some villages like gas is $12 a gallon, like he doing oil. Yeah. a gallon like it's just really hard they're off the road system you can only get there by skiff or by snowmobile in the winter or by plane Mm -hmm. so it's it's just a lot of work to get things out there so that the Yukon salmon and just like salmon in general is such an important resource for people in that region so it's been kind of devastating to watch this collapse of the salmon happen in this area Um, so it's interesting to watch it play out in contrast to the Bristol Bay fishery, which is really thriving. And yeah. that is more southern, southwestern Alaska, kind of near Dillingham, that area. Really mm-hmm. big fishing area. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> that's a, know, really cool. a lot of information. <laughs> no, that's awesome. It's good to I think get all the details out there because, you know, I know nothing <laughs> about this yeah. system other than, you know, a few things I've heard about it. And I know like Bristol Bay gets talked about a lot, at least in fishery circles I feel like so yeah I recognize the name <laughs> yeah people but... are like Bristle Bay ding 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 like okay. yeah exactly <laughs> where it's where all your salmon comes from pretty much you'll get your pink salmon your sockeye salmon that's in your grocery store it's going to come from those fisheries probably at least if they're marketed wild Alaska salmon yeah um and I guess that kind of gets into my question of what the major management issues that you've been looking at are (laughs) Um. yeah it's a really unique management system actually because that we have what is called we have a treaty with Canada that Mm -hmm. we are trying to meet the goal of a certain number of Chinook and a certain number of chum crossing the border that Mm -hmm. go into Canada near Whitehorse and Teslin and all the smaller communities that are up on the upper end of the river we have yeah we have this like treaty that we um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I'll have to look it up and send it to you later. Yeah, but it is this agreement that we have with Canada for a certain number of salmon to cross the border. And if that number isn't met, then that affects how our management is done in Alaska. <laughs> so that that agreement, if the number isn't met, then automatically closes our commercial and our subsistence fisheries. So this is the third year in the row oh, that wow. our subsistence fisheries are entirely closed. So that has been really interesting to watch because that has never happened before for both Chinook and Chum. It has happened for Chum before, but it hasn't happened. So this is like the yeah. first time we had both fisheries. But they both had it happen. That's so crazy. Yeah. So it's basically like the salmon are kind of running like a gauntlet up the river system, mm-hmm. I guess. <laughs> if they don't, yeah. if not enough of them make it to Canada, yeah, then they shut the whole thing down. That's so interesting. I had no idea yeah. that that's how that works. And they're like, they're doing a lot of studies right now trying to figure out why the salmon aren't making it. Like a lot of them are making it to like where it splits off into other rivers. Like there is the Koyukuk River that it splits off to. And then the Tanner Rivers, all the rivers that are like the Porcupine River, they, they like split off in Alaska and go off in different directions to, um, mm. towards like where other villages are. Um, and then some of them make it up those tributaries. But they are finding that there is higher rates of mortality. Um, if sam- They're trying to see if salmon are dying pre-spawn. If they yeah. don't make it to spawn, um, they're trying to see if like something else, like something in the water, if they're dying off because of heat. Like They're doing a lot of different studies trying to figure out why 
they're now making it up to those headwaters where a lot of them are destined because the historical fishery, there's over usually over 1.2 million Chinook, I believe, that make it up. Wow. I'd again have to check with those numbers. Um, but yeah, it's, but so it's over, been a yeah, significant it's decline. Yeah. yeah, man. <laughs> That's crazy. I yeah, I don't I guess I didn't even realize that there was that um kind of additional layer to the whole <laughs> management thing because you're already dealing with like weighing out what is needed for subsistence fishing for commercial fishing and then you have this whole like there's also Canada <laughs> so we yeah. have to keep everyone involved in it that's wild <laughs> yeah it's crazy it's a huge management area like almost 2,000 miles like how do you even manage it um the way that we do it at least on our teleconferences when we have like our um our like tributary wide teleconferences on the Yukon they're divided into like fishery management districts, which are like districts one through six. And then mm-hmm. all the, then each tributary, like each main tributary has their own district. And then Canada has their own. So we work with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. And then um, also on the call is US Fish and Wildlife Service and Alaska mm-hmm. Department of Fish and Game. So gotcha. usually the managers for all of those regions are all on our conference calls. And um, we share information out week to week about closures and like, what the numbers are looking at on the sonars and like any questions that subsistence and commercial fishermen want to answer usually people who are living on the river wow yeah <laughs> that's impressive but i mean i guess i'd also going off that um like to maybe talk a bit more about kind of what your association's overall goals are and like what areas you guys work on what initiatives you have going on um at any given time. Oh, I definitely think that at our biggest goal is to inform the fishermen of what's going on. I yeah. think that is the main purpose of our teleconference survey. Um, I, we kind of focus on informing fishermen about, because like, you know how the salmon, they swim up the river over the summer. It takes them a long time to travel 2000 miles. So yeah. usually they'll start off in like a luck and knock down at near the mouth of the river in like June. And then they'll end up at Eagle, which is right on the border, mm-hmm. like end of July, early August. And then they'll make their way up to Canada through mid August and things like that. So it takes them so long to get through there. So we kind of have a management system set up to watch how, what they're doing, where they go through these communities. And we communicate mm-hmm. with fishermen. We actually have a survey that we do every single summer asking fishermen how much they're catching, what they're catching, um, what they're using to fish. So we uh, we reach out to 10 surveyors in 10 communities who surveyed the local fishermen in the region who are not only catching the salmon, they're also catching pike, whitefish, um, shefish, and then any other salmon that are non-Chinook or chum. So they'll catch mm. a lot of pink salmon, especially near the mouth of the river, coho, sockeye, and yeah. sometimes we've even had people catch sturgeon and like a number of other fish who just oh, cool. happen to wander their way up, yeah. there, which is really interesting. Um, but our job is to kind of learn from the fishermen what they're catching, what's going on in the river, if they're, especially if their needs are being met. That's a really big thing that we're asking all of our fishermen when we're talking mm-hmm. to them. Are you catching enough meat to feed your freezers? Are you catching enough meat? to feed your dogs. Like we have a lot of mushers out there who are living and yeah. feeding 50 dogs and they rely on a lot yeah, of, you need a lot of meat for that. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, pink salmon is a, a Mashadon's favorite, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Um, but that's a lot of the indicators that we are trying to record so we can not only inform other fishermen upriver, but also share to the managers so they can make a judge on if we need to make an emergency opening or things like that. Um, if it's possible right now, it's not possible because we're not meeting that escapement yeah. goal for Canada's agreement. So mm-hmm. it's really interesting. Yeah, that's cool to think too that you guys can kind of almost like track their progress <laughs> through the river yeah. system and um, all the different feedback loops that need to be working <laughs> I guess, yeah. for that management machine to work. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I've really only been doing this work for a couple of years now. There's people who have been tracking the Yukon and working in this field for like 20 years who have been like actively watching each year, like the declines and exactly how it looks and like how the weather impacts it. So it's really cool to walk into this field and learn and like try to help people out and like interact with people who know it so well. It's been really fun. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I'm sure you get, you know, talking to all those different kind of organizations and like stakeholder groups and stuff too. You probably get a lot of perspective. I'm just thinking about this. I feel like maybe something worth giving some space to. Um, yeah. Alongside just talking about like the Yukon and how important its salmon are is like maybe some of the reasons why like the salmon is declining. Like I feel like there's. Oh, sure. Um, Go for it. <laughs> because like that, I the Yukon in some ways can serve as an indicator fishery for what might cause declines in other rivers. Um, the most important thing I want to say is that like, it's not any one cause that impacts these salmon and why there's declining. There's just like a lot of different reasons why we might be missing the Chinook and the Chum salmon in this river. Um, but some of the attributed causes is ichthyophonus, I believe a salmon disease that has been impacting salmon once they go out in the ocean and they get this disease and that it causes mortality before they make it up or it causes them to be too weak to make it to the headwaters just because that disease impacts them. Um, some of the other issues might be incidental catch in the area and fishery if Chinook or Chum are caught, are caught in the sockeye salmon fishery. Mm-hmm. Those salmon are already deceased, but they can't be sold because they're they're sim- kind of similar. Yeah, because they're kind of a bycatch. Mm-hmm. I was curious about that earlier when you were, I guess, talking about how all of these species are mixing in that one region. And I'm sure it's, you know, incredibly difficult to avoid catching other salmon species that are also, you know, still valuable to fisheries in Alaska and mm-hmm. Canada. Um, but I guess if they're targeting, you know, the marine end of things <laughs> and catching sockeye out there it's impossible to say like oh I'm only going to catch sockeye I'm not yeah. going to get all these other salmon <laughs> they're trying yeah to get- it's really hard to differentiate that kind of thing I feel like bycatch is also a really big issue that happens a lot in the deep water trawling mm-hmm. in the fishery looking for pollock which is the fishery that gets things like your fish stick like that one is just like the major money maker fishery that people are always looking at and that can be a potential issue. I feel like 
there hasn't been as much research as there should be to find out if those two things are a major issue. Um, they definitely are something that we see happen. Like a lot of salmon are brought up in that pollock fishery. The pollock yeah. fishery also is picking up bycatch that are halibut and crab because they mm-hmm. they drop the nets to the bottom and they like pull yeah, them Yeah, so they're scooping up all sorts of they're things just, in there. And I guess, yeah, that is like difficult when you have these like super lucrative fisheries that also like come along with a bunch of bycatch. It seems like, you know, they're almost... They have like a really high cap on how much bycatch yeah. they can actually pull out before it yeah. becomes a problem because it's like the economic value is so mm-hmm. high and you know people want to maintain that fishery but then it's like what is it doing to the other ones in the area it's kind of yeah it's from like- what i believe like <laughs> they they try to cap their bycatch to under one percent, which like sounds really small, but when you are yeah, catching, when you think about the number, <laughs> yeah, you're catching millions of pounds of fish. Like that is millions of pounds of bycatch that you are catching, and like that could be that could be literally anything. It could be king crab, it could be halibut, it could be salmon. Like it could be whatever is there that you're happening to not fish for, and then you have to, especially in that bycatch fishery, you have to just discard your bycatch. You can't mm-hmm. sell it or anything, so it just kind yeah. of becomes waste. It's just crazy it's just, to think about. <laughs> I know. Can grab a salmon and stuff. Yeah. yeah. There is definitely room to look at the management there and what what could be done there. Like, I feel like there are some, some solutions, but. Oh, um, for sure. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's really interesting to think about because um, at the same, at the time that like people are thinking like, it's it's bringing a lot of money into the state. Like it's helping a lot of the people um we shouldn't decrease that but people are are also like arguing at the same time like we're not going to have that money anymore if it gets rid of half of our other fisheries Mm -hmm. like we have to manage this fishery holistically one of the most interesting things that i've learned learning all of these things is like how a lot of people also point to like early salmon mortality like if people are catching like a, I don't know if you've heard of the word Jack, it's like a young King, King salmon spawn mm-hmm. yeah. usually like five to seven years, but a, a Jack is a salmon that comes to spawn early. And mm. at that point they can't really spawn there cause they're too young, but they have yeah. any ways to spawn. So mm-hmm. it's like that, for example, is something that like some scientists and industry people try to point out, like, this is the reason why like salmon are dying or like, this, these salmon are dying at like one years old. They're having like early mortality because of warming ocean. And like, those are also factors that we are thinking about, but I feel like yeah. you have to look at it as like a huge whole picture. It's things that are impacting them in every stage of their life. That is really changing what is happening. And the Yukon used to be such a huge, robust fishery. Like we, I remember yeah. 30 years ago, I was, well, I don't remember. I wasn't born yet, but, <laughs> but you've heard of it. <laughs> I've heard of it. 30 years ago, like there was a commercial fishery on the Yukon. Like people were commercial fishing straight out of the river. The king salmon were like 80, 85 pounds. Like they were so cool. Like (laughs) I know. It is crazy to think about those days. Um, and it was like that all over the state of Alaska. Like we used to have salmon that size even in Southeast when my grandma was growing up there. It's just crazy to think how things have changed so much. Yeah. So I think that's why management is super super important 
I would but, love yeah. to see it. You know, I would love to just see what it looked like, like even know. Years ago, you know, wouldn't that be, be so, so cool? cool. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> like, if someone asked me, like, <laughs> if you could travel back in time, I'd be like, just show me the big fish guys. Show me when yeah. they were out of them. <laughs> it would be really cool. I <laughs> that's feel what that. I want. <laughs> yeah. And that, that is, I appreciate kind of how you've explained all the different aspects of kind of the threats to those fisheries and what's happening. And also like all the different users and countries involved, because like, this is, I don't know, it kind of paints a picture of how insane fisheries management can be and that there's so many levels and factors to consider. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's so crazy because Alaska is just so huge. Like, even just yeah. the land mass is massive, but then That's you add true. on like the hundreds and hundreds of coastal miles of waters where people are fishing and like trying to map your lo- longitude and latitude when you're fishing to like fit in like a certain management area. <laughs> it's crazy. We get that so many wild. people working on it. Like um, people out in the coastal fisheries work with the Coast Guard and then they work with Fishing Game and they work with Fish and Wildlife Service. And then they have to also like understand if they're going to be going into Russian waters, especially if you're farther east on the Aleutian Island chain, like you're yeah. really aware of that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. It's really, really interesting. And that that even brings me into something that I was thinking about earlier about how fisheries is, especially out on the ocean, traditionally hasn't been managed in combination with the fisheries in the river. It is like, yeah. my supervisor brought it up that it's like, feels very recently that they combined fish like understanding fisheries as an ecosystem management rather than a regional management system because the salmon were so abundant you didn't even really have to think about it they just yeah they just come back yeah they just (laughs) come back it doesn't matter and now now it matters so now we have to think about it and look at it in this way which is interesting yeah I guess that is kind of wild to think about because I know you know as someone who's like involved in fisheries research we hear plenty about like ecosystem-based management (laughs) now that's been such a push over the past couple decades and everything but it's just funny to think how you know fisheries science and management seem to take such almost like a simplified like mathematical kind of (laughs) yeah straightforward approach to this stuff and then would make these kind of silly judgments just almost arbitrarily that it's like oh yeah we're just gonna like look at this river on its own and then you know the fish out there let them do their thing and meanwhile it's like you know those fish are the same fish (laughs) yeah places like you have to think about those yeah they're swimming up this river (laughs) it started in the ocean yeah I think this has been an ongoing issue everywhere they like manage people like to simplify things oh yeah that, big time. that includes management <laughs> yeah I mean it's nice when it is simple but when it's not <laughs> you run into a lot of problems yeah and that was interesting too I'd love to I guess circle back how you mentioned that disease that's affecting salmon oh, yeah. is that like has that increased in prevalence in you know the past few years or anything or has it maybe just been there but we didn't notice because there were more fish (laughs) from the studies that we have been kind of incidentally running into during my research on this job I've noticed that there is 
And the scientists have noticed that there is a little bit more of a pattern for ichthyophonus to show up on the salmon when there is a heat stress event. There was a major, major heat stress event in 2019. It was super hot all over all of Alaska. Like Mm. I believe that um, we had some major salmon die-offs in some of the smaller tributary rivers, um, especially in Western Alaska. And those salmon that have that heat stress when they're still living in river have a tendency to be weaker and make combining that with them eating worse food, which is kind of like the equivalent of like junk food out in the ocean. They have a prevalency to get that kind of sickness, get that illness, which is called Mm -hmm. ichthyophonus. And um, that ick is, is, it's shortened ick, I guess, that that isn't spread to their young, it's not spread to younger salmon, um, but they do go in the ocean. Mm-hmm. So it's been interesting to yeah. kind of learn about it. And I guess you are right. We have been seeing a little bit more of it, but there's there's so little salmon. Like we have yeah. <laughs> a weekly report, like a report and then a weekly report that we send out through our org about the salmon numbers. And sometimes we only get like one fish through a certain wow. sonar. <laughs> so yeah. if that one fish happens that big, like that's a really high percentage yeah, that's a, for that week. It's like one fish has a yeah because it was just the one that's wild but yeah I mean I guess that makes sense because there's been so much discussion about warming marine heat waves and the blob and things like that but I guess especially for salmon that are you know such a migratory fish and undergo these like really energetically expensive (laughs) like migrations if it's also dealing with excessive heat that's having a metabolic effect and a disease those guys aren't going to make it. That's yeah. too much for one fish. So. It's like really a major compounding of factors. So it's like, it's not that research needs to look what is the cause of the salmon decline. They have to be like, what are, what is causing these salmon to be so weak? Like what? Yeah. It's like, which causes can we fix at this point? Cause there's yeah, plenty. Yeah, exactly. Like wow. there are some that obviously we can't we can't fix right away and we can't control, but there are some things that we can impact and we can try and fix while we know what happens. So yeah, it's been interesting. Um, one of the things that I also like to think about um, that is like a really interesting idea um, is the idea of hatcheries mm-hmm. in because a lot of the B- Bristol Bay salmon are originating in hatcheries and mm-hmm. we have hatcheries in throughout Alaska, where Alaska Department of Fish and Game um, kind of runs these hatcheries and put places fish in ecosystems and rivers and things like that. And salmon there seem to be thriving, but then you also have the argument that those salmon are not genetically wild anymore. Like even though they are wild swimming out in the ocean, they do originate in a place that is not a wild and not growing up in mm-hmm. what a salmon usually is. So like that is one of the things that people have been trying to approach as a solution on the Yukon River is having hatcheries. There is one egg drop location in Canada, but that is the only thing that is similar to a hatchery on the Yukon. And there has been a lot of pushback by people on the Yukon to avoid putting hatcheries on there because that can be that they kind of see that as like 
we're going to lose our wild salmon because these hatchery salmon aren't going to be wild anymore. They're not going to be genetic. They're going to be genetically different. Yeah. Um, it's like you're sort of missing early selection because, you know, it's like fish make, well, not all fish, but most fish make like a ton of babies hoping that, you know, some of them yeah. will survive. And yeah. there's a bunch of bottlenecks in those early stages. So I guess, but if you're, you know, reared in a hatchery, then you have it a little more cushy <laughs> before yeah. they let you out there. Yeah. So yeah, that's interesting. I guess it's like removing maybe a lot of like selection pressures that wild salmon would be experiencing. Mm-hmm. There's a, definitely a lot of positives that come with hatcheries like that, that does increase the just the amount of salmon that you might see in a river that <laughs> otherwise declines that we've been seeing it kind of makes a buffer for that yeah and it provides for the commercial fisheries that are out in alaska in the gulf of alaska and the bering sea um mm-hmm. all the way up and down the strait in southeast because southeast alaska also has a lot of fisheries so that that kind of creates that buffer and kind of creates that that economics space that people are looking for and looking looking for jobs to fish um, yeah. but there's there is that argument at the same time like mm-hmm. sam then with they aren't wild anymore and they don't yeah it's like <laughs> yeah yeah no that makes total sense it's like in the short term kind of a good solution to keep the numbers up mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah that's what also i feel like people are worried about because you know coming from an economic point of view <laughs> you have to keep the fishery going somehow yeah Um, yeah yeah that's like a tough question (laughs) there's just like so many so many factors involved and then there's like so many proposed solutions that like sometimes it's kind of hard to juggle you know oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) hard to track like it's taken me so long to get to this point where like I kind of understand the fishery like yeah no it feels like you have a good grasp of all that stuff going on but yeah that's like an incredible like web of things to keep straight in your brain (laughs) yeah and I feel like I have a very surface level understanding especially compared to some of the fishermen who live out in the villages Mm -hmm. subsistence fishermen who it's since it's so much of their life like they do need to keep track of it so like they know it so much better than me yeah they probably have it inside and out (laughs) yeah they're trying to fill their smokehouse I'm just trying to catch a fish every once in a while you know And this is just one, one coastal state. And this Mm -hmm. is just like my org only works with the Yukon and a little bit with Western Alaska fisheries. Like that doesn't include any of the other regions, like the Northern region when, where like, for example, like salmon are starting to show up in the Arctic, like where they haven't before, like (laughs) swimming up rivers in like Barrow and Utkiavik because I don't know, like, I think it's 10% of salmon leave their tributary home river to go to other rivers mm-hmm. and so like pink salmon are now showing up like almost yearly in the arctic which is really interesting because they used to not be able to do that but now it's now it's like warm enough that they can survive yeah that they can make it there that's so cool i guess yeah. yeah that reminds me in florida in the south it's like hot and then the panhandle it's a little more temperate almost uh, yeah. um but we're seeing the warm conditions to the south like start to inch their way up into kind of the middle of the peninsula so it's like some species that could never make it (laughs) kind of up you know further north 
are suddenly just appearing. <laughs> it's like, oh, get some snook or something in middle of Florida where they've never been before and it's bizarre. So it's like kind of, I guess, the same thing. It's just at a much higher latitude. <laughs> you have fish. Yeah. Like, oh, I can be here now. It's yeah, warm enough. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> That's so um, cool that they can do that opportunistically. But then it's like, yeah, what do you do? I guess in the scenario maybe where people start fishing for them up there if there's enough of them up there at some point oh people have been fishing for them up there too <laughs> i mean pink salmon are a hardy fish they're an opportunistic fish like they're yeah. the biggest fighters out of the five salmon species that we have mm-hmm. so once they enter a river there's going to be a lot of them yeah people are like <laughs> so That's crazy. it's like i don't know People, if, if there's pink salmon, you're more than likely able to catch them and keep mm-hmm. them. I mean, there's also a lot of other species up there that we don't have because, like, it's very, very much an Arctic climate up there, like on the North Slope. Um, yeah. People catch a lot of pike and a lot of Arctic char and, like, a lot mm-hmm. of um, salmon that are in the tributaries. That is another really interesting management region that I wouldn't be able to talk too much about. I don't really <laughs> yeah. Know you That's can okay. fish in the rivers, but you can't fish in the Arctic Ocean because of the agreement up there. So mm-hmm. you can only fish for the salmon once they're in the river, which is really interesting. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Alaska um, statewide has a subsistence priority that came from um, first ANCSA, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act in 1970, and then ANILCA, the Alaska Native Interest Land something. Uh, I can't remember Alaska Native Interest Lands Claims Act or something like that. Yeah, that f- gives a rural priority to fisheries and hunting and other sorts of gatherings. So if you live in a rural region, you have priority to the the resources in that region, whether it's fishing, hunting, gathering. Like if you live in that region, that is a big priority. Um, yeah. So that that puts subsistence above everything else in management because it's such an important thing here in Alaska. So, yeah, no, that's sure. cool. And I feel like, um, you know, that's sort of a unique thing that, you know, people who are down maybe in like the lower 48 don't have a good idea of how that works. Um, yeah, it's super complicated. I barely <laughs> yeah. understand ANCSA. It's, it's a act, like it impacts the entire state. It changed the entire way that our state's lands are managed and our waters yeah. are managed. Um, but it is kind of like our guiding factor and mm-hmm. who can catch what, when, where, how, like what can you catch it with a dip net? Can you catch it with a set net? Can you catch yeah. it with like whatever you're fishing with? Like it's really, really interesting how how intricate those acts and management and Yeah, the nitty gritty details kind of mm-hmm. that they get into for that. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. So it is good to know that, I guess, though, that they do prioritize subsistence since, you know, mm-hmm. those people are depending very directly <laughs> on yeah. the system. And it's, you know, not like everyone else who just wants their salmon from like <laughs> Florida Publix. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. you have you know, to catch enough to live. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm trying to save money here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> And just like protect our way of life, you know, like we've been doing this since way before yeah. anyone else came, any commercial fisherman came here. So mm-hmm. it's been awesome to watch the 
at least in some ways the state of alaska has protected that right yeah um, cool. and there's room for improvement but i'm glad that that is written into it in law yeah like, really <laughs> it's like it's a step <laughs> yeah sweet well i guess we can move on to the final five questions that we use to end every interview we always say it's the easy part but i think it's hard <laughs> you have to pick favorite fish and stuff oh. but yeah so we can actually start with that um if you can pick what is your favorite fish salmon is obviously going to be a yeah <laughs> i love smoked salmon mm-hmm. i love baked salmon i love fried yep. salmon <laughs> there's so many good ways Throw it up in every format yeah, yeah so good um i have i usually have my top three i love salmon halibut and black cod those three are just so good nice. um, i'm a big fisherman i try to catch those every single year so i can fill my freezer so mm-hmm. um since i've been living in my new apartment i don't have a freezer right now which is no kind of so if I catch anything, I have to store in other people's freezers. <laughs> You're like, hello, I have a fish. I know. <laughs> Somewhere, please. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. I'll give you a fillet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, totally. Like that would work on me. It's just like a light bribe. <laughs> You're like, I got know. it. You can have my freezer. I don't care. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, that's so funny. But yeah, yeah, that's my top three. They're just nice. food for the soul. <laughs> yeah. I know. I think it was on... Like one of your Instagram stories or something a while ago, we were like canning or whatever. And I was like, oh, that looks really good. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I'm jealous. Yeah, I had something really yummy cooking up. I've been, I think that was probably the time I went down to Seward. I had eight sockeye in one day or in two nice. days. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So good. Sweet. Um, and question number two is what is your favorite fisheries related memory? Ooh. So a hard one. You can pick Ooh. multiple if you have multiple. <laughs> I'm not a stickler. <laughs> oh, I have. Oh, I have such a good one. Um, yeah. I, so I've been fishing since I was really, really young or like accompanying fishing trips, you know? Yeah. Um, so this is also one of my earliest memories, which is really funny because I was only four years old and I was out fishing in this spot in Ketchikan with my dad and he was just like fishing and I was just kind of standing around looking at the tide pools poking at starfish and sea anemones and things like that in this tide pool right, yeah. next, to, right next to the the spot that we fish at is called mountain point and mm-hmm. it's kind of this like shelf so it's like steep and the salmon so around this this bend into the inlet and there I was like poking at the starfish and I see right in front of me while my dad is fishing a giant four foot long wolf eel that swims right along the edges of the rock. And I don't know if you've ever seen a wolf eel before, but they yeah, are like they're really ugly, ugly. Like scary looking. And I was four years old. So I was like, oh my God, Neil, I'm so excited. I was like swimming at it and jumping up and down. And my dad goes up and like scoops me away from the water because he's afraid that this wolf eel is going to jump out and pull me like eat his child (laughs) i don't think that they do that (laughs) yeah i'm pretty sure they don't i think they just hang out that's so funny (laughs) but still i do remember him like scooping me away from the ocean and we're like i want to see the wolf eel i'm like four years old (laughs) (laughs) i feel like that should have been the sign too that you're gonna end up like doing fish stuff because you know (laughs) fisheries people like they see like the weirdest fish and they're like oh it's a perfect angel like how cute it is i love it i know <laughs> like, wolf eels so are excited. objectively <laughs> ugly and you were like let me 
at it. <laughs> so That's funny. exactly what it was. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's cool too. I don't think I've ever actually seen one of those in real life. Sad. Yeah, it was one of the few times I've ever seen one. Which is yeah, crazy. in a tide pool. That's so cool. <laughs> I know, totally random. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Sweet. Well, we can go into question three. Uh, this one's kind of general, but it's just like, what would be your dream job and or location? Ooh, if I yeah, that's a tough one. Especially if I didn't have to worry about money, I kind of wish that I could be doing the job that I'm like doing right now, working with the management and with the fishers, but also like commercial fishing out in the summer. Cause I just love yeah. being out on the water and like catching the fish. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't even, sometimes I don't even think about it as a job. I'm just like, I just want to be out there. On yeah. The you're like, this is the best. I know. Like it just is so awesome. And I really haven't gotten that opportunity to do it for a full season yet. Um, just because like, I don't know. You, if you've ever known anything about commercial fishing, it's it's kind of insane. The schedule is insane. You have an opening for salmon for three days, so you fish for three days straight. Yeah, exactly. It's like sleep is for the week. Like yeah, get exactly. So yep. it's kind of hard to fit in with other jobs, you know, when you have yeah. other things going on. Just like a holistic fisheries kind of world is my dream. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get that too. It's like I spend plenty of time on my computer thinking about grouper and doing like models and emails and stuff. I don't know. I always feel refreshed and happy after I've gotten out on the boat to like actually catch samples and, you know, get to touch some fish, get some fish slime on me, things like that. I know. (laughs) It's like very satisfying. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I totally get that. And those days it's like super long, like barely sleeping but totally worth it in yeah. my opinion anyway it's like, always worth it at the end of the day you yeah like a, and you're like oh I gotta go out there I gotta be I don't know I gotta feel like a real human for once and so yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that sort of actually um like rolls into the fourth question so that's if money was no object what is one kind of fisheries related project or initiative that you'd want to work on like what would you do if you just had infinite spending money oh my goodness (laughs) oh that's such a hard question (laughs) I know this one's like a real stumper because it opens up like way too much (laughs) for people (laughs) into this stuff how about I wave my magic fairy wand and bring all the salmon back can I I know (laughs) yeah I'm like we could build a time machine and like just go get them (laughs) and be like hey guys If I could build a time machine, I would go back in time and see those saber-tooth salmon. I just want to see one. That I know I'm so never going to cool. see <laughs> salmon, but I would love to. Yep. <laughs> that's awesome. I think that's I like think a very I, reasonable objective. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'd be such a big fan. I think if I could do any project, I'd try to figure out a way to bring those 85-pound kings back. I think yeah. those so awesome i would like, yeah i <laughs> you have my support on that one i yeah. think a bunch of people would yeah be very happy with that especially the sport fishermen who like to hold up the big photos oh yeah they're like <laughs> look at me <laughs> i'm awesome yeah, yeah. <laughs> we love a good fish it. pick <laughs> <laughs> so fun <laughs> well that actually brings us to the last question which stinks because i've been enjoying this a lot but it's a good one um so if there was 
like one point or idea that you could just magically have programmed into everybody's head, what would that be? Oh my goodness. Oh, this is also a really hard one. I definitely think it has to do with salmon. You know, I think that I think this is something that I would want to drive into the idea of man- management's heads, but also like just everybody that like salmon and fish are a sustainable resource if they are managed sustainably, if they're managed with the idea that these will come back again as long as you do it correctly. Yeah. Because I don't think that that is always at the forefront of most people's minds, because especially since it's been such an abundant resource for so long mm-hmm. that like you haven't had to think about it. So yeah, it's like now people are contending with the fact that like, oh, if we don't take care of this properly, like it can run out. <laughs> yeah, but it, will, it won't be sustainable anymore. So yeah. I, I just really hope that that is something that people will continue to think about in this field that like, yeah, it's a sustainable resource. We can keep it going as long as we protect it. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's an awesome point. And it's also something I think that, you know, even just like average people out in the world who maybe don't think about fish constantly in their day-to-day life, like it, that's something that's valuable to know because I think a lot of people have gotten the kind of idea that like, oh, like the world oceans and fisheries are all doing awful and they're like in decline and everything's, <laughs> you know, going very badly. It's like, well, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> these things, fishing and fisheries and people relying on fish for their livelihood and all of that, like those things are things that should continue and can. Yeah. That's a great point or principle. I think that's an excellent one. Yeah. Glad to share. I try to keep that in mind whenever I'm doing my work and whenever I'm doing my fishing, I'm like, okay, should I, should I take this one home? Should I leave it be? <laughs> Just a good reminder, mm-hmm. even, even on a personal level. So it's a good principle to carry. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been awesome just to hear everything you're up to and I'll be excited to get an update some point soon. Yeah, of course. And you'll continue to see my fisherman Instagram stories. Oh yeah, <laughs> for sure. I love to share my catches and share what I find. Sometimes yes. I've really fun creatures. <laughs> awesome. If you want to find out more or get a hold of Gabe, you can reach her by email at gabeflorin at gmail.com. If you would like to get a hold of me, you can find me and the rest of the hosts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or by old-fashioned email feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the show with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast logo shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Hannah. Thank you for listening to the 186th episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, fisheries systems can be sustainable. Sustainable.